it's right here or if it's in another country. Well, with that, let me pray and we'll get into the message proper. Uh, Father, your word is life. Your son, Jesus, gives forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And boy, we want to drink that up. Lord, we also want to share that with others. We thank you for your word and the promise of your spirit's presence. And we ask that his presence would glorify the Father and the Son and would bring a little bit of heaven into our experience this morning. Something, Lord, that speaks to each one of us right where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. I heard a recording recently, an interview with this gentleman, Andrew Roberts. He's a British author. Several books. He, he uh, emphasizes history, wars, primarily wars and leaders in the 18 and 1900s. And this book, Leadership in War, was from last year, 2019, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History. This is in part the introduction to the book. It goes this way. Taking us from the French Revolution to the Cold War, Andrew Roberts presents a bracingly honest, deeply insightful look at nine major figures in modern history. Napoleon Bonaparte, Horatio Nelson, Winston Churchill, George C. Marshall, Charles de Gaulle, Dwight Eisenhower, Margaret Thatcher. And basically what he does is goes through and says, what did their leadership model look like? Why were they successful as leaders? So Napoleon Bonaparte, he says, this guy was really good at, at bringing about an esprit de corps he would listen to the advice of any of his soldiers. They didn't have to be in the hierarchy. He'd listen to anyone. They said if he was in a battle and saw somebody doing something particularly brave or noble, he would get off his horse, take the medal from around his own neck, put it on them and reward them for that bravery. And other soldiers, of course, saw that. And they not only had that sense of honor from their leader in the moment, but there was a lifetime pension that came with that medal as well. So he was uniquely gifted in, in really buying people into his vision so they'd follow him anywhere. He mentioned of George Marshall, somebody that's easy for us to forget, but Marshall was responsible here in the States for the buildup of the American army from the ninth largest army in the world behind East European countries, no kidding, to millions of people. It was an administrative miracle what Marshall accomplished for the European axis, especially during World War II, talked about Eisenhower had this unique ability to know what to do in what order, and that when Ike came in to help leadership in that war initially, people were, were second-guessing his judgments until they saw, no, he knows what he's doing. Now, I only mentioned seven there. Roberts throws in two other people. He threw in uh, Adolf Hitler. I'm on. Help me, Ben. This is doing nothing for me. Yeah, I got, there we go, thanks. So if I punch, if it doesn't do anything, you punch for me, okay? Thanks. Uh, he also mentions in that group of nine, he mentions Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. And the, the interview was, was helpful. So the interviewer says, why were these guys great? So you got Hitler and Stalin in here. You know, Stalin is arguably, Stalin or Mao is the greatest murderer in the history of the world, just on numbers. Tens of millions at least died under Stalin's rule intentionally so. And of course, Hitler responsible for the atrocities throughout World War II, at least in Europe. And so the interviewer says to Roberts, why do you consider these guys great examples of leadership? And he qualifies it and he says, well, it's not that they were morally great. It's not even that the, 
the effect of their leadership was positive. It's that they were great because they rose to the heights of power and so to depth and breadth of influence on others, they were great. Not that the influence was moral or right or helpful. Simply it was great in its effect. That's interesting. That's a great way to differentiate leadership. Well, like Hitler and Stalin, one of the great leaders during the transition period in history, when we went sort of from Q, <laughs> I'm getting, uh, guys, I got nothing. I'll just tell you, I need the next slide if you've got it, if you can. So we had a meltdown. Can you tell? <laughs> we had a tech meltdown earlier this morning. I think we're still getting over it. Maybe we've got the tech flu. I don't know. Whenever, ben, whatever works, we'll go with it, okay? Um, we're in the 49th lesson in the Heroes and Villains series this morning, and we're looking at Herod called the Great, Herod the Great, King of Israel when Jesus was born. And he was great in the same sense that Roberts includes Hitler and Stalin in his list of great leaders. It had nothing to do with morality or positive influence on others, but it had to do with the depth and the breadth of his influence. Uh, Herod, by the way, is a unique figure in history. And if you get a chance to read about him, the works of Josephus are easily available online. You can read about Herod there. But he was called great for one reason. It was simply to differentiate him from his heirs, some of whom were leaders and kings also. Uh, he succeeded to the title of kings in, in the Roman Empire in the Middle East in a time in which to, to be a king and to hold your throne was no small thing indeed. He was fearless. He was adept in war. He led armies. He led Roman armies as well. He was the personal friend of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And you know, after they lost at the Battle of Actium, Octavius, who was Julius Caesar's heir to be the next ruler, Octavius's group won the sea battle of Actium. And so Antony and Cleopatra lost. And so Herod was backing them. So when he realized he's on the wrong horse, he took his hat in hand, he goes to Octavius, and he tells him, I'm your man. And he was. And he was one of Caesar, Octavius, of course, becomes Caesar Augustus, one of his most trusted regent kings from then on. He was also, and this is what people remember, I think, more than anything else, his building. Now, Herod built temples all over the Roman Empire. Uh, it would be hard to imagine anyone else in history who was a greater builder than King Herod was. Temples to Roman gods throughout the empire. The city of Caesarea on the Israeli coast is there to this day. He created a port there, a man-made port at Caesarea. In fact, you can see concerts online that are, on the, that are uh, staged in the amphitheater that Herod built. He created personal refuges, estates at Masada. Most people are aware of that. On one side of the Dead Sea, Masada, I think, is on the east side. And Machaerus is on the other side of the Dead Sea. Uh, most famously, of course, was the temple. So Herod doubled the size of the Temple Mount. When you and I see or think of the Temple Mount today, Herod doubled the size that it was when he came into power. Twice the size. So under Herod, that Temple Mount area was the largest sacred enclosure in the world. And he totally revamped the temple. Do you remember that when the Jews returned from Babylonian exile, 
they rebuilt the temple. That was the first work. But you remember some of the people who'd seen Solomon's temple saw the foundations for this one and they wept, not with joy, but they said this isn't going to be what we had. But that was the second temple until Herod came along and he revamped it entirely. And that temple was a wonder of the ancient world. When we think of the temple Jesus and the disciples walked into, it was Herod's temple. That's the same temple he said, this is my father's house, you remember in Luke 2. So Herod was this incredible builder. So on the world stage, in multiple ways, Herod was this remarkable, great figure. But on the flip side, he was one of the most unholy and faithless of God's creatures for sure ever to walk the earth. And the distinction we want to make this morning as we talk about faithfulness or faithlessness in the image of Christ is this. Faithfulness can't be measured by the world's standard of greatness, success, or status. As you're probably aware, but you, you can be exercise huge influence in this world and not measure on the scale of faithfulness in Christ's image. So you think of Hebrews 11 and the examples of faithfulness there. Most of the people aren't well-known, weren't well-known in their day. You do have a Moses, you have a Noah, but you have lots of unnamed people who are simply faithful in their time and place. You think of political, professional, financial, social successes are not necessarily indicators of either God's favor or a response from God to our faithfulness. And this is particularly important for us. Uh, the church, unfortunately, is a lot like the world, and the world is easily impressed by things that have some kind of status, that are visible, and Christians are, are not immune to this temptation to measure our influence, our success, our faithfulness in God's economy by how well we're known, by how much money we have, by how wide our influence is. So Herod had success and wealth and status, he had it all, but he had no faithfulness to Christ, to God the Father, to his Creator. It didn't exist. That's not a measure in God's eyes of our faithfulness or even God's favor. Presidents and kings, governors, legislators, all leaders are ultimately serving God's purposes, but that does not mean that they're doing so willingly as they count it. It doesn't mean they're offering faithful service to God got the same timeline that we've been using, thanks. So Herod was born about 73 B.C. By the way, he was born into a noble family. His father was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. They were called Idumeans in the New Testament period. About 73 B.C., his mother was Nabataean, so she would have come from the adjacent area we would call today Jordan. His father was well-placed politically. Herod went to Rome in 40 B.C., and was decreed king of Israel by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. It wasn't until 37 B.C. that with a Roman army, he conquered Jerusalem. And so his real reign, his effective reign over Israel is, is called from 37 B.C. He dies about 4 B.C. as well. What we'll see about Herod, he's great. Herod the Great. He's great as a liar. He's great in his pride and his anger. We'll talk about that at some length. And he's great related to death. He's great as a murderer. We're going to be in the Christmas story this morning. That's Matthew 2, verses 1 through 18. This is page 807. If you use a pew Bible, and I'm going to be reading from the ESV. 
So, after Jesus' birth, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem and they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east. We've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You can imagine you're the reigning king and someone says there's a new king born. What's going on? Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So he's the king, and someone says, there's a new king. Oh, really? Where is he? And you can see where all, we know where all of this is leading. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. This is Micah 5, verses 1 and 2. You Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So I want to know, I want to know where this guy is and I want to know when he showed up. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Hey, go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they'd seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Stop there for a moment. Contrast this response. These guys know, and remember, they've probably from the Babylon area, they've got Jewish texts from the Babylonian exile. They know from numbers a king's going to be born in Israel and a star is going to manifest itself to indicate his birth. So they know this is the Messiah that Israel's been waiting for, and they're joyous. They're happy about it. And Herod, who is an Edomite by birth, is in fact a practicing Jew. He should be really happy about this. God's promised Messiah might might be here, but he's troubled. And the contrast between those two groups is, is interesting. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those would be treasures fit for a king. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Verse 13, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, this is the text we looked at last time, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And a brief note, if you read Hosea, when you read this verse in context, you'd never know it was a messianic verse. But God uses his unholy king to drive Joseph and family to Egypt so that when they come back in, just like the exodus of the Jews with Moses, Jesus, God's ultimate son, is brought out of Egypt just like Israel, God's son, Exodus 3 says, in the same manner. Herod was helping fulfill prophecy and he had no indication he was doing so with his wicked schemes. Uh, Verse 16, Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi And it really wasn't trick. They weren't trying to deceive him. They were just obeying God when they didn't go back to him. He became very enraged. He sent and slew all the male children 
who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, probably taking the indication from when the star appeared and going a little past and a little present to make sure he got anybody born that was a possibility. Uh, then what had been spoken through the prophet, through Jeremiah the prophet, this is Jeremiah 31, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. There's lots of places in Israel called Ramah, but there was one that was near the place Rachel was buried. And so those the thought of mourning and loss are tied together there. Well, we'll look at Herod in three different ways. and We'll start with this whole. Oh, sorry. That's a. Uh, good image. Anyway, let's start with this. Look at verses seven and eight. Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He said, I want to come and worship him, too. Now, I assume he said it with a straight face. And and it just probably just came out like butter. You know, I would love to find this guy, too, that you want to go worship. And I would love to come worship with you, too. And, and wasn't that nice? And, you know, the old joke for every attorney in here or politician. I'm sorry, I don't name this at anyone here. But, you know, the old joke about attorneys and politicians. How do you know when they're lying? You know, the line, their lips are moving. Well, that would have been true of Herod for sure in spades. And there's a sense in which just at a worldly level, you'd say you understand that it was no small thing to get power in his day, much less to keep it. And so the art of lying and deception was part of these guys just trying to keep their heads on their shoulders and not be bumped off. In fact, guys, it's interesting when you think of people of political power throughout the ages and we would look at them and say, wow, they had everything, you know, they had the, the wealth and the influence. But for many of them, they worried day by day if someone was going to kill them to take their place. That with all that influence and power and status, there was all this downside to that as well. And Herod had that in spades as well. So lying for Herod and deception, intentionally being deceitful, that was part and parcel of him ruling as king in his day. It was a way of keeping not only his job, but his life as well. And I suspect that when he's interacting with the Magi, that when he just lies and says, yeah, I'd love to worship him too, I doubt if he had to think twice. I doubt if there was any interruption in his speech pattern. I think it just came to him as naturally as if you and I were having a lovely conversation with nothing at stake whatsoever. And this brings up the first thing, the first concern about Herod's greatness. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And what you see in the life of Herod is that Herod looks like Satan. In multiple ways, but it starts with this one, that he's a liar. And you can't count on anything he says as being true. John 8.44, Jesus said of Satan, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character because he's a liar and the father of lies. And this is a big deal. Guys, there's read up on two studies. <clears throat> one study concluded that pretty much everybody... Statistically, everybody lies two times every day. That was the result of one study. Another study, a little bit more focused, a little bit more intentional, said 60% of people, and this was, a, this was a, a more of a setup, 60% of people in these staged conversations that lasted no more than 10 minutes lied within 10 minutes of starting a conversation. 
So when we, we think of Herod, Herod the Great, Herod the Great liar, and we say, thank God I'm not like Herod, I think we need to be just a little slow about assuming that we're always telling the truth because statistics suggest that we, like most people, will find these conversations, these scenarios where we, we simply cave to lying just like Herod did because there's something for us to gain. We're avoiding some kind of trouble or we're getting something we want, but I don't assume that I or you are above this statistic, that the likelihood is that in some kinds of situations, we're not going to be truth tellers. We're going to look like Herod. People won't know when we're lying or telling the truth. If you think about this on a characteristics, um, everyone sins, right? We sin. If you said, I, I never lie, I, I never shade the truth, then I'd be lying when I said it, wouldn't I? Because most of us probably fall to that temptation in some way at some time. But where do we live? So what are we characterized by? So we'll assume none of us are perfect, but am I characterized by telling the truth? Objectively, as I understand it or know it, Am I characterized by telling the truth? Do I embody truth sort of as a, as a life characteristic? Remember, Jesus says he is the truth. Objectively, he is the truth. And remember when he stands before Pilate, Pilate's questioning him and he says, I bear testimony or I witness to the truth. You know, the early disciples were truth tellers when they simply shared the gospel, which was, God the Son came and walked among us and He took our sins on the cross and He rose from the dead. They were telling the truth. To what degree are we characterized objectively in the mundane, truth-telling, but also spiritually in the sublime? Do we tell the truth about what Christ has done for us? Do we tell the truth about who God is and what God's provided for us in Christ? Are we characterized by truth with a capital T? Is Christ characteristic of being truth? Is that what we see growing in us to the degree that we see ourselves lying that we look like Herod who looks like Satan we simply want to repent and we want to trust God that whatever situation we find ourselves in where that first impulse is to lie is to shade the truth that we stop there and recognize and say Lord you're good for this situation too I'll tell the truth and you show me what that looks like whatever that might be Am I honest in finances? This is tax season, guys. Am I honest in my taxes, in my finances, relationships? Herod is faithless, and he starts, in the biblical account, faithlessness in his speech. He's a liar. The other thing is this, second one of three. Look at verse 16. Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi. He became, uh, ESV says, very enraged, furious. He's boiling over with Anger, And I think there's two reasons for this. The first is the deceiver has been deceived. The liar feels like he's been lied to. I, I worked one time with a guy years ago. He's a big strapping guy. And uh, he was just out of prison. And so he'd been hired. You know, this is trying to help him get his feet on the ground again. And, and I asked him, you know, something about, you know, Oh, you're, you just got out of prison. That's an interesting story. Why were you in prison? Well, he said, it was theft. 
And he, he just volunteered the story that one of his friends had told on him. And he was incredulous that his friend would tell on, on him the thief. He, he couldn't, you know what I mean? He couldn't believe that somebody like him would tell someone else and get him, the thief couldn't believe someone else would tell the truth about him. That was an interesting take. So this is so so Herod, he's ticked. He's trying to manipulate the situation. He realizes he's been manipulated. And the other thing is his goal of removing a threat to his throne is now blocked because he doesn't know exactly where. They didn't come back and tell him who this child was. Now, guys, the text doesn't say this, but when you look in Scripture, this is something you'll see. This kind of anger, and this is fury. This is rage. You know, outbursts of anger, that's one of the fruits of your and mine fallen nature. It's in the list in Galatians 5. When I erupt in anger, in fury and rage, it's not only a part of my fallen nature, but it's always fueled by pride. It was interesting, uh, the Sunday school session this morning, we touched on some of the same elements that were in this lesson, in this service as well. It's fueled by pride. This kind of anger is always fueled by pride. And it goes something like this. Um, Pride elevates my opinion of myself so that whoever or whatever opposes my will is insulting my greatness and my divine right to have things my way. This kind of anger is fueled by pride. Listen to this from Proverbs 16.32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. Now think about that for just a second. God says it requires more effort, more focus, more energy for you and I to conquer ourselves and our temptation to anger than it does to go and, and think when it says capture a city, those are walled cities with big tall walls, big strong gates, that it's harder to defeat our own temptations to sin in anger than it is to go out and capture an external fortress. That anger is no small thing. It's a big deal. It's a big force in us. Listen to this from Job 36, 13. The godless in heart cherish anger. And it's that same sense of pride. Have you been sinned against? Let's say legitimately sinned against. And you're angry about it. And so you, you turn that thing over in your mind. And what happens when you do that over time? You get angrier. And you don't forgive your enemy. You, you remain embittered against your enemy. It doesn't get better. It gets Worse, well, when we do that, Job says we're the godless. We're like those who don't know God. We cherish anger. We remain embittered. It's a huge negative. It has nothing to do with Christ-like faithfulness. Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. You remember when Jacob is giving that paternal and prophetic blessing to each of his sons? And regarding Simeon and Levi, do you remember what he says? He says, cursed be their anger. Because what did they do when they were mad? Do you remember Seth violated their sister Dinah? Not a good thing. Something needed to be done. But what these guys do? Well, they tricked the inhabitants of the city of Shechem. And then they went in and they murdered all the guys. And they took all the loot. And Jacob, he said, you've made a stink to the inhabitants of the land. 
And now you've made us vulnerable because what you've done has no connection to what was done to your sister. This was outrageous. So, you know, one of the things that happens on this, this is not part of the lesson. So when you see in Jacob's descendants, uh, who does the kingly line come from? So Judah, what order in birth is Judah? Fourth. Why did Judah, the fourthborn, why did he get the kingly line? Because Reuben slept with his step, with his, uh, with his, with his dad's concubine. Sorry, <laughs> you got to figure the relationships. Yeah. Uh, and Simeon and Levi murdered. They all were bypassed for their sins. And two of them, it was the sin of unbridled anger that turned to murder. Judah's the fourth, and he takes on the firstborn as, as far as the line of kings. Now, Joseph, if you know the story later, Joseph actually gets the double portion, and that was also part of the blessing of the firstborn. But Judah gets the line because the oldest three brothers disqualified themselves. Two of them did so because of their unbridled rage and anger. So anger and pride will lead us to say things. Have you ever found this? If, if I let that anger, if I ride it, I'll say things I'll, later I'll wish I hadn't, and I'll do things that I'll, I'll wish later that I hadn't done. Because in the moment, that anger just feels so right. And you know what we want to make sure that we do? Remember, outbursts of anger, fruit of the carnal, sinful self, but love, joy, peace, the fruit of Christ, that's his life within us. When we feel that anger start to rise, we want to stop. Don't speak. Don't act. We just want to stop and check ourselves. That's a healthy thing to do. It's a healthy exercise. I've had to put it into practice in my life. I'm still working on that. Just stop because that impulse is wrong. This is what you'll see in Scripture about anger. God gets angry. Every day with the wicked, Scripture says. God gets angry and he knows how to do it. Almost every other verse, there's two, that when it talks about our anger, it's always a negative, except for two occasions. And one of those in Ephesians says, be angry and don't sin. Because when we get mad, we sin. So when you feel that righteous indignation, that rage start to come up, you just stop. Because that's an outburst of anger almost 100% of the time. We just stop. We get control of ourselves. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Lord, help me to deal with this as you would. Think about it as you would. Act on this as you would. So think of this uh, little questionnaire for ourselves. On a continuum from humility to pride, where do I tend to live? What am I characterized by? Now guys, some of us put on a good front. And people might think we're never proud when we know we're proud half the time. So this is just for us as we're thinking about our own life. Humility takes on two aspects. One is not that we deprecate ourselves. One is objective understanding of who God's made us, what our gifts are, what we're good at, what we're not good at. It's just objectively knowing how God's put us together. And the other one is the willingness to serve others, to consider others more important than ourselves. That's humility. And pride is, it's all about me. Are my goals being met? Herod's goal was blocked and he's ticked. Are my goals being blocked? Is pride fueling anger? Where do I typically live on that spectrum? 
And related to peace and anger, where do I tend to live? So something upsets. My apple cart gets turned over one way or another. Do I choose to be at peace? Do I choose equanimity within myself? Lord, it's okay. You're in charge of everything. You're in charge of this. I'm trusting you. Life goes on. Or do I just get mad? And I just get angry because you violated whatever my law is. Or life has violated my sense of what I am due. Where do I tend to live? We're the only ones who know that about ourselves. Well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe our family members know that too. Uh, But where do I tend to live? Just thinking about that. Where might God want to be at work in my life on those? When I see traits of Herod in my life, certainly on anger and pride as well, I want to repent. I want to stop and I want to repent. And the last of the three is this, this aspect of Herod, this greatness related to death and murder. Look at verse 16. Herod saw he'd been tricked. He became very enraged. He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, two years old and under. You know, one of the things you'll find in Scripture is that God's often a master of understatement. You know, God could take one sentence and he defines someone's whole life. Or he takes a few sentences and he defines this whole period of time. And you really got to get in there and read it and sort of explicate it, pull out of that. What did that look like? Guys, if you don't get into a scene like this, we just read over and it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But just if you were one of these, let's just say you're a mom in Bethlehem. And let's just assume it's the morning, just for our imagination's sake. And you hear heavy footfalls in your little town that, that are out of place. You're really wondering what's going on. And then you would have started hearing noises, wouldn't you, of other moms or dads. And you would have started hearing some screams because these soldiers come in. They'd come into your house, too. They'd have gone house to house and they'd have gone village to village in the hills that surround Bethlehem. And you would have seen them kids in the street. I suspect they're pulling their clothes back. Is this a boy or is this a girl? And all those tiny little boys, they'd be toddlers and smaller executed on the spot, sword clubbed, thrown to the, we don't know, spears. This murder, this is the murder born of pride and anger and rage. This is hard, it's hard to put in your imagination. It was so brutal, so foul, so wicked. You know, when I was thinking about this, the only thing I could think of in Scripture that went along the same line was a lesson we saw probably well over a year ago. This was from 1 Samuel 22. Another Edomite named Doeg. You remember he followed wicked, proud King Saul's command and he slew 85 innocent priests in the city of Nob, just north of Jerusalem. Can you imagine? The text there doesn't tell us that there was more than that one man, Doeg. Maybe there were, but the text doesn't say. That would have been a process. As one man after another was stabbed, 85 men slain in cold blood because King Saul thought they might have helped David. David who was, by the way, God's man. Here you've got King Herod. We don't know the number. All the little boys, all the toddlers on down, all being murdered by Herod because one might be the heir of David, might be the Messiah. And we don't know which one, so we'll just kill them all. The wickedness and the brutality of this is is boggling it's it's crazy and guess what murder like lying is one of the key attributes death of satan again 
John 8.44 again, you, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, isn't that interesting? You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. You know, when we entertain murderous thoughts towards others, we reflect not Christ. We look like Herod who looks like Satan, murder in the heart. It's interesting too. Uh, this was a slide we used in an earlier one. I think this was from Esther. In Revelation 12, which is an interesting passage, it's out of step with the rest of Revelation. Revelation, as you know, is primarily foretelling the future. But this section in Revelation 12 is clearly looking in the past because it's describing the birth of Jesus. So Revelation 12, 1 through 7, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She's pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, we know because these, this symbolism starts in Genesis with Joseph's dream, we know that this is a description of Israel, of the descendants of Jacob. Now you could say Mary specifically, the individual who gave birth to Jesus, but the picture here is more on the cosmic scale. It goes back to Israel as a nation. So the nation receives through birth their Messiah. And then verse 3 Another sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. And we know the dragon is Satan. This is articulated elsewhere in Revelation. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And guys, I assume that's Herod. I assume that's a description of the efforts of King Herod to the little toddler boys in Bethlehem. Now, verse 5, we know it's Jesus. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So think about this. Think of the, the contrast. Herod rebuilds the temple. What's the temple? It's God's house. Who is Herod trying to murder? God. He builds his house and he murders him if he can. Talk about irony. Herod who rebuilt God's temple now tries to kill God's son. Herod specialized in death. And you know, for following Jesus, Jesus is the author of life. Think of John 10, especially John 10, 10. So the thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy. Looks like what Herod's up to. Jesus says, but I've come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. Herod puts bodies in the ground. Jesus speaks life both to those who are sick, but he calls the dead out of death to life. Herod's the antithesis of Jesus. No one was safe around him. By the way, if you read anything of, of Herod's history, this really courageous guy in battle, this really great builder, but listen to this. Uh, Caesar Augustus was his friend, remember? And Caesar Augustus quipped, better to be Herod's pig than his son. Better to be Herod's pig... So he's, a, he's nominally a practicing Jew, so he doesn't eat pork. A pig was safer around Herod than a son. So two, at least, of his ten wives he had executed. Three of his sons he had executed. A mother-in-law he had executed. And scores of others he had executed to make sure nobody could push him off his throne. Also, famously, as Herod approached death and Talk about a vile death. This guy was rotting to death. 
His intestines were bursting. His privates were gangrenous with worms. He was in such pain that he took a knife to stab himself and commit suicide. His cousin stopped him, but that's how he died. It was one of the most ignoble deaths you could think of. But as he's approaching death and he knows it, this is what he ordered. He said, I want you to round up all the Jewish leaders you can. You take them to Jericho and put them together in the Hippodrome, the horse arena. And this was the order. And when I die, you slay them all. Just like the little boys in and around Bethlehem. When I die, you slay them all. Because this was his thought. Nobody's going to cry when I die. But if you slay all those, there will be weeping and lamenting around my death. That's what he ordered. Now, they didn't carry it out. But that's how he wanted to go out. He was a death-dealing despot. So the greatness attached to Herod is primarily about greatness in wickedness. And isn't it interesting, if you read the secular historians like Josephus, which is good reading, by the way, uh, you see the greatness aspects of Herod, the, the building, the, the military uh, abilities, etc. But when you read about Herod in Scripture, all you see is lying and pride and anger and murder. He's just he's the antithesis of Christ's likeness. He looks like his father, Satan and the devil. And this is just a great reminder to us guys. We're in a political year. Politics are everywhere. Christians sometimes attach too much importance to politics. And if you're at this church anytime, you know, we believe in the political realm. We believe that voting for good candidates and good measures is part of being a good neighbor, is loving our neighbors. Absolutely. But it's possible to read too much into political victories. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll see that God says it is he himself who appoints every king and every leader. That God appoints them. And interestingly, so we think, okay, well, God the best, God, uh, God elevates the best. And you know what Daniel says? It says, no, sometimes he elevates the worst. Sometimes it's because that's what we deserve. The worst, but for other times, it's simply because it's accomplishing God's will in ways that we simply don't understand in the moment. But God says in Daniel that he elevates the basest, the lowest, the meanest, smallest people, not great, because somehow that's part of him accomplishing his will. So we don't want to read too much into a president, a king, a governor, a legislator, you name it. Because God somehow is sovereignly working behind the scenes to put people where he wants them. We're part of that process, of course, because we can vote. So that's a conscience issue for us, right? A faithfulness issue for us to be part of that process. But God's behind all of that because he's sovereignly achieving his will in ways we don't see in the moment, can't necessarily understand. So the character of Christ, Christians seek to imitate as those who possess the Spirit of Christ, is to love our neighbors and hate our enemies. No. <laughs> to love our neighbors and to love our enemies. It's to pray for our families and it's to pray for those who abuse us and spitefully use us and speak all manner of evil against us. Isn't that interesting? That's a challenge, isn't it? You know what? You and I are not capable of that. You're not. And I'm not. But Christ in you and Christ in me is. And that's what he did. And his life's in us. And we can do that same thing. 
Jesus gives life. By the way, let me just, have I passed out of death into life? Guys, this is a yes or no question. If someone asks you, are you going to heaven or hell, and you're trying to figure it out, I don't believe you're going to heaven yet. This is a yes or no question. Have I passed out of death from life? And that just means, do I know I'm not what I should be before God? I've done things I shouldn't do. I've, I haven't done things I should do. That means I sin. And God's absolutely perfect. He's absolutely just. He's absolutely holy. And God cannot accept sinners into heaven. And so Jesus has come as the servant of all. He's died on the cross to cover our sins. He's offered eternal life to all of those who simply in the hands of faith say, I'd like that. I want my sins forgiven. I want to live with you forever. Have you done that? Have you simply said, Jesus, you're mine. I'm clinging to you. You're my only hope of salvation. If you have, you have eternal life and Christ's life is in you and everything else is gravy. If you haven't, it's what you need to. And I just encourage you to do that today. Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice today, he says, don't harden your heart. A hard heart tends to get harder over time. Say yes to Christ. Say it now. Also this, are we nourished on the bread of life and are we refreshed from the water of life? And I'm just thinking of meeting with the Lord. Scripture and prayer. Guys, this goes down to the very basics, the fundamentals again, right? So life is relationship with God. God is life. Jesus is life. How do we connect to Jesus? And how are our minds renewed and transformed so that the life of Jesus is more fully expressed in me? I have to know what God wants me to know. I've got to connect with Christ personally. And we do that through his word. He speaks to us. And prayer, we speak to him. It's that relationship that brings about transformation. And also just hanging out with other Christians in fellowship and worship and prayer. We did that this morning in Sunday school. We grow. It's a slow transformation, but it occurs through those means God's given us. And also, is the gospel on our lips? Thinking about truth telling. Is the gospel on our lips? We live in a world, a kingdom of darkness, right? Our king sits on a throne in heaven. He has not yet come and taken up the throne of David on earth. But we are his representatives. We are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says. We are citizens of heaven, Philippians says. Are we representing our king and our God through the truth, the fruit of our lips, sharing the gospel with those around us? It's a big deal. Are we praying, Lord, show me the opportunities and then help me take them? And this isn't hard. We can just ask questions. But are we truth-telling related to the gospel itself? That's the most important thing we can share with others. Well, in Herod, you've got the epitome of a life at odds with God. And when we see elements of Herod, guys, we just need to stop. We need to stop. We need to repent. We need to say, Lord, live big in me. Help me say no to that old sinful life that looks like Herod, who looks like Satan. Help me say yes to Jesus. Well, guys, with that, uh, rise if you would, and let's close. By reading a passage, the worship team will come up. This is, for me, this is just a great reminder of what Christ's life in me looks like, at least on a small scale, sort of just some good reminders. So Romans 12, 14 through 18, let's read that together. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. 
but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all.